If you would, uh, turn in your Bibles to Colossians 1, uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 19. And before we get started, uh, let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to exalt the name of Christ. I thank you that our hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. And Lord, many of us are trusting in other frames, um, but I pray that we, especially after our lesson tonight, would depend on none other but Christ alone. Father, what a great portion of scripture, how needed in our day and age when it seems like Everywhere in the United States, things are crumbling, whether it's fires or hurricanes or earthquakes or uh, various things that are going on. And we seem like everything around us is losing hold. But, Father, we are so grateful that you are a rock that we can stand on. You are the only solid foundation in this crazy world. And so, Father, we pray that you will help us to grasp the richness of this passage And, Lord, that it would be used in each of our lives to secure our anchor even more steadfast. And I pray this for Christ's sake and for his glory. Amen. Well, there's a portion of the Old Testament in Exodus 5 that reveals a question on the heart of many men and women today. And the scene, if you'll recall, is when Moses was leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. And remember, God told Moses, I want you to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And so Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh and they tell him, God wants you to let the people go. And I'm interested in Pharaoh's response. He says this, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. I will not let Israel go. And ladies, I'm interested in Pharaoh's question, who is the Lord? As well as his statement, I don't know the Lord. You know, Pharaoh represents most of mankind today in their lost condition. They don't know the Lord, therefore, they're certainly not going to obey him, right? Perhaps, had Pharaoh known who the Lord was, he would not have sinned so greatly against him. If Colossians had been written, Moses could have taken him to the verses we're covering tonight and said, Pharaoh, I am glad you asked that question, and I have the answer for you from Colossians 1, 15 to 19. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him were all things created, that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible, invisible, whether they're thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Ladies, In these few short verses that we're going to see tonight, Paul is going to give eight descriptions of who Jesus is. And do you know there's no other portion of the word of God that sets Christ forth and his preeminence more than any other portion of God's word? In fact, tonight, before I came, my husband and I were sitting down watching the news together, and he said, what what are you preaching on tonight? And uh, he always uses that word preaching. I always correct him and say teaching. But I, he says, no, what are you preaching on tonight? And I said, Colossians 1, 15 through 19. He said, oh, 
the supremacy of Christ. He said, I wish our churches could grasp that passage. He said, it would forever change the way they live. And I said, I agree. And I hope the ladies do grasp it tonight. And ladies, if you will listen in, and if you can grasp these eight characteristics of who Christ is, I promise you it will change your world. Now, the context is very important because we've just spent two whole lessons on Paul's prayer to the church at Colossae. And remember, he started with praises, he ended, or he started with, yeah, praises and ended with petitions. And remember, no, he started with petitions, ended with praises. Sorry, I'm getting it backwards here. And remember when he was ending his praise portion, he said he's transferred us from the king, from the uh, realm of darkness into the kingdom of the sun whom he loves. And so now he's going to describe this kingdom that you have been transferred into and this son particularly who God loves. And so it flows very well from the prayer that he has just prayed. So who is Jesus anyway? And ladies, this is an important question that Paul answers because remember the false teachers had invaded the church at Colossae and they taught that Jesus Christ was not the only way. He was, remember, the beginning of a ladder that led up to all these other gods that finally led up to the true God. And many in the church were giving heed to this fact that Jesus Christ was not God. Remember, they also denied that Christ was enough for salvation. They denied his deity. And so Paul is going to confront these heresies in these next few verses by giving them eight descriptions of who Christ is. Another little interesting note before we get into this is it is said that the early church would sing these verses that we're going to cover tonight as a hymn. And so, you know, a lot of the, the verses that we have in Scripture were put together in the early church and they would sing them. And uh, wouldn't this be a great hymn? I mean, just focused on Christ alone and who he is. Uh, certainly a lot better than some of the trite songs that we sing today in the Christian world. But what a rich song of theology. Well, let's consider the first answer to the question that Pharaoh asked, who is the Lord? Notice verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. So the first thing, if you're going to take notes, we're going to see eight characteristics. The first characteristic about our Lord or Jesus is this. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, to understand what Paul is saying, we need to define the word image. And it's interesting, the Greek word is icon, which we get our English word, what? Icon. And so not much difference there. And it just means a resemblance or a likeness. In fact, uh, we have an example of this. If I were to go get my purse and take a coin out of my purse, uh, I could show it to you, and it would have the, have the face or the head of one of our former presidents. It's a likeness. It's a resemblance to one of our presidents. In fact, when the Pharisees were trying to trip up Jesus about paying taxes, they came to him and they said, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? And he said, show me a coin. So they went and got a coin and he said, whose image is on this coin? And they said, Caesar's. And he said, what? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's? And ladies, just like the head of a president or a ruler on a coin or a dollar bill is the exact representation of that person, that's what Paul is saying about Christ. He is the exact representation of God. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul is talking about the blindness of the unbeliever, and he says this, 
whose minds the God of this age has blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the glorious gospel of the image of God, what, should shine unto them. Ladies, Christ reflects and reveals God, which, by the way, is the true God in contrast to the God that the Gnostics were trying to tell the church at Colossae to believe in. And Paul is saying, no, Jesus is the exact representation of God. In fact, Paul adds weight to this in another book, Hebrews 1.3. He says this, he is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. My friend, Jesus Christ is the exact representation of the essence of God. It's just like if you were to take, you know, those wax seals and you dip it in wax and you put it on the back of a letter. It's an impress, right? It's an image, the exact thing. In fact, that is what Paul is saying in Hebrews. He is the exact essence, the image of Christ. In fact, when Christ was with his disciples in the upper room right before he went into heaven, remember that was one of the questions that one of the disciples had. Philip came to him and he said, Lord, would you just show us the Father and that will satisfy us. You know what Jesus said to him? He said, Philip, have I been such a long time with you and you still don't know me? To see me, Philip, is to see the Father. So why are you saying to me, Show me the Father. To see me is what? To see the Father. Jesus says, I am the exact representation of God. Now, friends, this truth has some very sobering implications for us. You want to know why? Because according to Genesis 1.26, we were made, what? In the image of God. And we know from Romans 8:29 we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of God. So, put it together. Our Lord is the exact representation of God. We have been made in the image of God, and that has a very profound and sobering truth because we are to represent him And put him on display. In fact, do you know in the early church what Christian meant? It meant Christ followers, little Christ. (laughs) And so we are to put him on display. We are made in his image and we are to be his image bearers. And so we need to ask ourselves, am I? Did I put him on display today? Did anybody watch my life today and say, wow, you know, there goes a Christian. She's been made in the image of God and she's, you know, she's trying to follow. She's looking like Christ. And ladies, we should be growing more and more into the image of God. Now, Jesus is not only the image of the invisible God, but notice what Paul says. Secondly, he is the firstborn over all creation. Now, the word firstborn is protokos in the Greek, and it just means absolutely first. And it really implies two things here. First of all, it implies that Jesus preceded all creation. He was before anything was created. And secondly, he's sovereign over all creation. Ladies, do you realize that Jesus was there before the world was created. He was there. In fact, Psalm eighty nine twenty seven says, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. John says in Revelation, Jesus says this, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. 
He is the firstborn of all creation because he is before all things. Ladies, he's first in rank. He's first in honor. Now, remember, if you remember anything about our first lesson, this would be in direct contrast to what the Gnostics taught. Remember what the false teachers were teaching? Jesus was not first in anything. Remember what they taught? That God limited himself in the act of creation, and so there was another God, another God, another God, another God, and all these gods, until there was this lesser God who could make contact with evil, and so that lesser God created the world. That's when creation took place. And so to the false teachers, Jesus Christ was one of the lesser gods. He wasn't before everything. He wasn't before all creation. He wasn't sovereign. He was less holy, less God. And by the way, if you ever contacted Jehovah's Witness, this is what they believe as well. And so if you ever interact with a Jehovah's Witness, take them to this portion of God's word because it's pretty clear uh, who Jesus is. Paul's saying that's not true. Jesus is not a lesser God. He is the firstborn of all creation. Do not let that error creep into the church, Paul says. And I would say, ladies, don't let that error creep into our church as well. And it has in many churches today. Well, Paul goes on in verse 16 with yet a third description of our Lord, and it follows beautifully after being the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. All things were created by him and for him. So the third thing, the third characteristic about our Lord is all things were created by him and for him. All things were created by him and for him. And Paul describes what those things are. First of all, invisible things. That's things I can't see. I mean, I know there's air in this room because I'm breathing and you're breathing. And so we know there's air. We know there's wind, uh, the heavens that we can't see. We can't see above the clouds. And there's all the heavens and the glories. Those are invisible things. And then there's visible things he created. He created, even though mankind thinks they've created all these things, they wouldn't be able to make a chair or a platform if it wasn't for God. He created everything. Uh, He created the flowers. He created the trees. He created uh, babies. Everything that we can see with our visible eye, God created. So everything was made by him, visible, invisible. But Paul goes on to elaborate a little bit more, and he says thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. Now, what are thrones and dominions? Thrones and dominions would be the spirits and the angels around the throne. Principalities and powers would be rulers or authorities. In fact, these four classifications of powers refer to both holy and fallen angels, demons, And even man and even the chariots. Do you know God rides on chariots? Even that was created by him. Psalm 68, 17 talks about the chariots of God are 20,000. And you know that he created that too. Everything was created by him. In fact, Paul makes it clear as he ends this verse, all things were created through him and for him. He started this verse with that and he ends it. Why? Because he's emphasizing this so that the Colossian believers would understand 
No, it was not a lesser God who created. It was Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. He is God in the flesh. Do not let the false teachers teach you false things. It was Christ. He created all things, and all things were by him and for him. Now, ladies, Paul makes it very clear in this passage that he and he alone is the only true God. We're going to learn in a few weeks that the Gnostics not only believed that Jesus Christ was a lesser God, but they also taught that Jesus Christ was basically one of the angels that needed to be worshipped. And Paul is going to make it very clear that Christ is even supreme over the angels. He created the angelic beings, right? And he has authority over them. He is not an angel to be worshipped. He is the one to be worshipped. In fact, in the past few years, I've noticed an increasingly amount of preoccupation with angels. I don't know if you all have, but uh, people encouraging you to get in touch with your angel. Well, I don't know. I, I think my angel's pretty busy with all the traveling I do, but I don't have any desire to get in touch with my personal angel. Ladies, this, this is a dangerous form of Gnosticism, and it is practiced in some churches today. And we as Christians should be avoiding such nonsense. In fact, we would do well to remind ourselves and others who are caught up in angel worship of what Paul says in Hebrews 1, 4. Listen to this. Having become better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. But when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship who? Him. <laughs> Ladies, Jesus Christ is not an angel to be worshipped. Now, the false teachers, I am sure, would not like what Paul writes, that not only did Christ create all things, not only was everything made for him and by him, but it will end with him. And, you know, we've come to some false notion in our churches today that God is somehow enamored with us and that he is for us. And it's all about us, right? And narcissism has gotten into the church. It's all about me, right? But, my friend, we were made for him, and it's all about him. He is before all things. He has created all things. You and I are what? The chief end of man is what? To glorify him. It's not about us. It is about him. Think of what Paul says in Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has who can say to him? And when it goes on to say, for of him and to him and through him are all things. To him be what? Be glory forever and ever. Amen. Ladies, it's all about him. You haven't been his counselor, right? I know I haven't. Who has known the mind of the Lord? His ways are past finding out. Well, the fourth and fifth answer to the question who Jesus is is found in verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. So the fourth thing about our Lord is that he is before all things. In fact, Jesus told the Jews, he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. 
In fact, do you know after he said that to the Jews, they took up stones and tried to kill him? (laughs) I mean, they did not like that. Didn't matter if they like it or not. He is before all things. Revelation 22, 13, he says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Ladies, Christ is eternal. He always was. He always will be. Not only is he before all things, but in him all things consist. And this is the fifth thing that we learn about our Lord. By him all things consist. And it's interesting. I don't know if you've noticed how many times all things is mentioned in these few verses. Five times if you read that very carefully when you did your homework. Five times Paul mentions in these few verses all things. And any time anything in scripture is repeated, it's there for a reason. And Paul seems to emphasize this so that the readers will understand that Christ is above everything, all things. Now, when Paul writes here that in him all things consist, it refers to the fact that by him all things hold together. Ladies, did you know that right now God is holding the universe together Do you know it's because of him right now that our world is standing together? In fact, it's in the present tense that he is presently right now holding the universe together. One man says this, it is the son of God's love that holds in his almighty hands the reins of the universe and never even for a moment lets them slip out of his grasp. Ladies, can you imagine what would happen if just for a second Jesus would relinquish his power, that power that holds everything together? You know, the world would be in upheaval. One man said if he suspended the laws of gravity only for a brief moment, we would lose all points of reference. If any of the physical laws varied slightly, we could not exist. Our food would turn to poison. We ourselves would drift out into space or get flooded by the ocean tides. Countless other horrible things could happen. Ladies, he's holding the world together. In fact, I went to Walmart yesterday because I was going to buy some cheap ornaments, but I'm so cheap I wouldn't even buy the cheap ornaments. And I was going to bring an ornament up here and get a piece of tile and drop it because I wanted to illustrate to you that is exactly what would happen If God decided to not hold the universe together, we would be it would be chaotic. And yet Paul says this Jesus is the one by him. All things consist. He is holding right now, even though we look all around us and it seems like the whole earth is groaning and travailing. But, you know, they haven't seen the final groaning and travailing. Right. But right now he is holding everything together. And, you know, I think it's funny that people are all up in arms right now about climate change and how, you know, the world is going to be destroyed now. And now that our president has gotten out of the Paris climate agreement and everything's going to go crazy. But nobody on the news is talking about that day when God finally does let it go. And, you know, as the Peter says, everything in the world is going to be burned up. Everything. There is going to be that time when that happens. But ladies, he is holding all things together. In fact, Paul writes in Hebrews, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Ladies, that's how powerful he is. And I don't know about you, but I'm grateful that he's holding all things together. Are you? And since he is the creator who holds all things together, he knows how to order the events in our lives, right? If he can hold the world together by the word of his power, 
then he can hold Susan's life together and he can hold your life together, right? That should give you comfort tonight. It should give you security and it should give you hope. Well, we come to the sixth and seventh quality of our blessed Lord. Look at verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. Ladies, that is the sixth answer to the question, who is the Lord? He is the head of the body, which is the church. Now, when Paul mentions this, he's talking about the church universal. He's not talking about Grace Community Church or the church you go to. He's talking about all believers, past, present, and future. He is the head of the body. And to call him the head means that he is the sustaining power of the church. And, you know, when you think about your head, it's an important part of your body. I don't know if you've thought about this lately. Do you know your head controls everything? I mean, not your head, but your brain. It controls everything. So it is with Christ. He controls the church. He supplies its spiritual life and motion. In fact, it's very interesting analogy that Paul uses here because they tell me that it is the head where we find our pituitary gland, which promotes our growth. Did you know that? If you did not have pituitary gland, you wouldn't grow. It's also close related to health and growth of tissues, cartilage, and bones. Also from our head, we receive guidance. The brain, they tell me, receives impulses from the outside world as well as inside of your body. And then it organizes and interprets all these impulses, and it thinks and reacts both voluntarily and involuntarily. And because of that, it guides and directs our actions. And so, ladies, when you think about this, Christ being the head of the body, you can clearly see the analogy that Paul is trying to get across to the church at Colossae. He is the head of the church. Therefore, it is through him that we grow spiritually. It is through him that we receive guidance, right? He is the head of the church, the body. And I won't steal the thunder from Ephesians because that will be something hopefully we'll talk about in our group. I don't know about you. I'm thankful that I have a head. <laughs> I mean, I have my husband. But I'm thankful for Christ being the head of the church. You know why? Because he's holy, undefiled, separate from sinners. That's a great head to have, isn't it? He's pure. He's holy. And therefore, I can trust him to lead me, to guide me into all truth. He's not going to lead me astray. And when I grow, it's going to be spiritual growth because he's perfect and he's full of knowledge. Ladies, this is someone that will equip us to serve him. What a joy. Well, the seventh description of Christ, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, this does not mean that Christ was the first to rise from the dead because Lazarus, right? Jesus raised Lazarus. Lazarus was the first to rise from the dead. Lazarus is not above Jesus, but it does mean Jesus is the head of all who have been raised from the dead. In fact, we know Lazarus eventually died again, right? Jesus did not die again. He was immortal. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15:20 puts it well. Now Christ is risen from the dead 
and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, why is this so important? Well, Paul says, so that in all things he might have preeminence. What's he saying? In other words, Jesus, because he's the firstborn of, from creation, he stands above everyone else. He is superior to everyone else. He should have the supremacy. Ladies, he has preeminence over the universe as creator, over the chief among those who have risen from the dead as head of the church and in our lives. This means he has first place in all things. Now, this would be a rebuke, not only to the Gnostics, but to the false teachers. And it's a challenge, just as it was for the church at Colossae, for us. Because you know what this means if I really put it together? This means that Christ must have first place in my family, my marriage, my profession, my ministry, my time, my love, my conversations, my pleasures, my eating, my playing, my athletics, what I watch, the music I listen to, my money I spend, my worship, and anything else you want to add to that list. Christ must have preeminence. He must have first place. Does he have first place in your life? Is there anything that you have placed before him? Ladies, it should go without saying that the one who is firstborn, the creator, the sustainer of the universe, the head of the body, firstborn from the dead, should have the right to preeminence, right? He should be preeminent. Well, Paul now gives us the eighth and final answer to our question, who is Jesus? Verse 19, it pleased the Father that in him all fullness should dwell. So the eighth characteristic of our Lord is this, in him all fullness dwells. What does this mean? This means in Christ is the totality of God with all of his powers and all of his attributes. Do you know there is no deficiency in Jesus Christ? He is God in the flesh. In fact, Paul's going to say later on, in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now, the word pleased here, where Paul says it pleased the Father, the word pleased means that God thought it good that in Jesus all of his fullness would dwell. He was well pleased, in fact. The word for fullness means completion. And interesting enough, Paul uses a Greek word here for, for, for fullness, which was a term used by the Gnostics to refer to the totality of all the lesser gods. You know what they believed? They believed that God's fullness, you know, God created all these lesser gods. They believed that this fullness of God, you know, he got the, this God got a little bit of it and this God got a little bit of it. And so all the fullness of God was divided up into all these lesser gods. And Paul's saying, uh-uh, no, it's not. In him, in Jesus Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Ladies, in Christ alone, God dwells. His power was not distributed to any other gods. Jesus was fully God and fully man with a body. And it's interesting, this word for dwell here would not be fleeting because the word for dwell here means to house permanently. 
It's always been there. It always will be there. It will never leave. Ladies, the idea here is that the fullness of Jesus Christ is at home permanently in him. It was not something that was added later. Jesus has always been God. Now, how would the Gnostics receive this? Not too well. To the Gnostics, Jesus was only a lesser God, and there would be no way in their minds that God always dwelt in Christ. That would be absurd to them. But... To the Colossian believers, these few short verses should have been an encouragement to them, and they should be an encouragement to you and to me. Because this type of honor was ascribed to Jesus, Jesus, the one who about 30 years before Paul wrote this epistle, died on the cross. And so Paul is encouraging them. This Jesus, who died on the cross 30 years ago, is preeminent in all things. He is the creator. He is the sustainer of the universe. And you know what? He's able to answer all those prayer requests that Paul prayed for them in verses 9 to 14. You think he can answer all those prayer requests? I think he can. This same Jesus is all sufficient regardless of what the Gnostics taught about him. Ladies, I do not know of any other portion of the word of God that is more detailed on the person of Jesus Christ than these verses that we just covered. When you and I can truly understand what Paul is saying here, there should be absolutely no reason for you or I looking anywhere else but to Jesus for purpose and meaning in our lives. Number one, he is God in the flesh and therefore he deserves our worship, our adoration, our trust. Does he have your worship, your adoration, and your trust? If not, who do you worship? Who do you trust? Secondly, he is the firstborn, so therefore he should have the highest place in your life. Does Christ have the highest place in your life? If not, who or what does? Thirdly, He is the creator, and because of that, he has the right to command your life. Do you obey the commands that Christ has set forth for you in his word? Are there some commandments that you're avoiding? Fourthly, he is before all things, so therefore, as you place him first in your life, there's no reason for you to worry about the past or the future. Are you anxious or worried about anything today? Number five, he is the sustainer of the entire universe, and therefore he can hold your life together. (laughs) Does your life seem out of control tonight? My dear friend, if God can hold the entire universe together, he can hold your life together. Are you letting him hold your life together? Number six, he's the head of the church, and therefore you should let him guide you and you should submit to his headship as you grow in his grace and knowledge. Is he your guide? If not, whose counsel are you following? How have you grown in his grace and knowledge this past year? Seventh, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Therefore, He must have preeminence, and you must put away all idols. Is there anyone or anything that you love more than God? 
What do you think about the most? What is your heart set on? And then lastly, he and he alone is complete. In him, all fullness dwells. Therefore, there is nothing that you need to add to Jesus Christ. Ladies, it is not Christ plus something else to make your life happy or complete. Is there anything or anyone that you are looking towards to make your life complete or happy? Ladies, when we consider the ramifications of these eight essentials of who our Lord is, when we consider the heresy of Gnosticism that has crept into our churches today, it's everywhere. We must pause and soberly reconsider just who is this one that we call Lord. Is he really our Lord? Maybe for some of you, there may need to be some repentance that needs to take place after this lesson. That's great. For those of you who grasp these truths and understand it and live them out, the next time someone says to you, hey, just who is the Lord anyway? I don't know the Lord. Take them to Colossians chapter 1 and introduce them to Jesus the Lord. It will be the most life-changing introduction they will ever have. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you so much that your son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That by him all things were created that are in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. Whether they're thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in all things he might have the preeminence. Father, we know it pleased you that in him all fullness dwells. And I pray, Lord, somehow you will take my feeble attempts to try to explain this text that is so rich, that should give us such hope, such solid foundation, even as we just sang, that nothing would rock our world. No bad news, no difficult relationship, Lord. We should be standing firm, solid on this Christ that we love and we worship. So, Father, help us. Help us where we're weak, that we could uh, really meditate on these uh, attributes of our precious Lord. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.